Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And for today's episode, it is part two of our uh, talk about back pain, basically what everybody needs to know about this back pain business. And so for um, if you're joining us now, I kind of advise you to go back and see that first part. I'll cover a little bit briefly of, of the information that we talked about then. Um, first of all, who I am, you know, I am an anesthesiologist. I'm fellowship trained in pain. I taught physicians. I practice in a group environment in the military, solo practice, et cetera. Uh, discovered, you know, really our outcomes were not what we thought. Um, went back and looked at the literature, found out the outcomes in pain were not <laughs> nearly as good as people were taught to believe. Uh, and that really sort of fundamentally changed my approach to not only pain, but medicine in general, really created straight child health because of that. All right. So I do know what I'm talking about. This is actually my specialty. Um, I do have a, 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 some <laughs> good dis- experience here. Um, and I'm well aware of the literature when it comes to this. All right. And last episode that we talked about is the importance of back pain. You know, it's really overall the second most common reason for all physician visits, but it's probably the number one if we separate upper respiratory tract infections uh, into different categories. Back pain would be the number one reason for visits. Uh, everybody's going to get it. We have a lifetime prevalence between 60 and 90%. Um, and then the industrialized world and the developing world have similar uh, rates of back pain. I mean, people seem to get back pain wherever you are. It's just the disability rates from back pain are significantly different, meaning this seems to be a disease of industrialized nations, uh, back pain, disability, et cetera. All right. We also talked about imaging, you know, MRIs, et cetera, the risks and harms of those. We talked about procedures. We talked about surgeries. And where I stopped yes, last, uh, the last episode was when we got to opioids here. And, um, we're going to talk a little bit longer about opioids and back pain, et cetera, what has happened. All right, so when you look at really kind of chronic opioid therapy, and these are things like morphine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, other names would be uh, oxycontin, Vicodin, Norco, et cetera. These were not nearly as is used as much for chronic, what we call chronic non-cancer pain. And I don't particularly like the word chronic non-cancer pain. Um, but they weren't really used as much until in the 90s. And this sort of all came to a head in around 1996 where the American Pain Society uh, in the American Academy of Pain Medicine released a consensus statement on pain that really said that pain's undertreated um, and that these types of medications, strong opioids, were effective uh, not only in in, in treating cancer pain but should be used in chronic non-cancer pain um, and that the risks of addiction and abuse were low. Now, what happened then after that time? And as I said, interestingly, this is about the time that pain fellowships started, interventional pain fellowships when we're focusing on needles and injections and things. Um, and the other interesting thing was it, later that same year it was when OxyContin was released upon the market. Uh, and then direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceuticals. When we start seeing all the commercials about you need a purple pill for this, and if you have symptoms of feeling dizzy ever in your life and are upset, then there's probably a drug that needs to treat you. Uh, that's happened in 1998. And if you sort of look at what, it's sort of almost this perfect storm when you look at opioids. And so over the years, from about 1996 to 2011, 
we basically doubled over double the rate of prescriptions. Um, and that's just the number of prescriptions. We're not talking about the actual amount of opioid. And if you look at the actual amounts that were used, say if someone was getting five milligrams in 1996 uh, for every man, woman, and child, uh, you know, it, it's in the realm of like 40 milligrams uh, per man, woman, and child. Uh, now, the exact dose, we actually do have a figure for that. I just don't have it off the top of my head right now. But anyway, it has increased dramatically. So much so that the United States being less than 5% of the world's population, we consume over 80% of all the opioid medications in the world. This is so dramatic that I say if this medication was going to treat pain, back pain, etc., then there is nobody in the United States. We should not have pain at all because we consume almost all of them. Now, the only thing that has been seen uh, since like 1999 to 2010 uh, is that as sales went up, that we've had a parallel line with the number of deaths due to overdose from these medications, people taking too many and basically uh, going into respiratory arrest and dying. Uh, and, and also paralleling that line is um, the number of people going into opioid treatment and in addiction programs. All right. This is such a problem now. The deaths due to opioids and prescription drugs exceed those of heroin and cocaine combined. Right. It, it, this is not a small problem. And what is kind of sickening is um, the way that these were marketed, all right? And if you look at OxyContin, there's a, a, a fantastic paper on this called The Promotion and Marketing of OxyContin, which is Commercial Triumph Public Health Strategy. I'll put a link to that at straightshothealth.com. You know, Oxy, it, it, it's a textbook in the way to market something. The only problem was in their pursuit of profit, Purdue Pharma basically destroyed and killed people to do it. And what they did is, again, it was released in 1996. It was... It was concurrent with this guideline, the suggestion um, from supposed experts in, in this world of pain that told other physicians, hey, you guys, uh, you need to listen to us because nobody's treating pain en enough and you need to give them opioids because, um, you know, they're safe to use, etc. And as I said, the data behind that was incredibly poor. I mean, we're talking horribly poor. Um, it, 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 it is not true at all, which we have subsequently found. But anyway, they told physicians and they educated physicians that they need to, that, that pain needed to be aggressively um, treated with opioid medications. Now, Purdue Farmer kind of jumped on this and they went from sales with the release of OxyContin in late 1996 from 48 million to almost $1.1 billion a year in sales of OxyContin by 2000. Uh, and by 2004 was a leading drug of abuse in the United States. Now, the way that they did this it was it was just absolutely brilliant in a horrible, heinous, devilish type of way is they found the physicians because there's always outliers that, that do things at the limits, I'll, I'll say. And they found physicians that were already prescribing uh, a large amount of opioids. And some of these people were misguided and thought that they were actually helping people, uh, but were prescribing large amounts of these opioids to begin with, and they wined and dined them, and they encouraged them. They sent them the drug reps. That, that really the nature of the drug rep have changed. Uh, you know, we started seeing more of these very attractive young women that were recruited from um, from colleges, et cetera, to, for these drugs, and they got these outliers. And they basically promoted them to increase. They they asked people who were already prescribing. They, took, they basically took their best customers who were already prescribing lots of their drugs and they got them to prescribe more. Well, then they took these best customers 
And they started whining and dining and taking them to these all expense paid uh, conferences. And then they trained them to be their spokespeople. Uh, as physicians, we do tend to listen to other physicians more than we would listen to, say, a salesperson at times. Uh, and so they trained these physicians to go out and become their quote unquote thought leaders uh, to teach other physicians about how, you know, it's this is the greatest drug since sliced bread and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they pursued, you know, expanded their sales force and um, had a bonus structure with their sales representatives on how many increasing people's sales prescriptions. I mean, there was this this unbelievable amount of money that they made with this stuff. They even marketed the drug itself saying that it was abuse resistant and uh, you know, if you were worried about addiction, you should use Oxycontin because people couldn't hurt themselves with it or whatever the other garbage that they said, all of which was absolutely false. They did get slapped um, for that uh, by the government. But we're talking small potatoes here. Uh, this has actually happened with some other drugs um, in other fields. Well, they may get a multi-million dollar fine, 40, 50 million. But when the drug is making over a billion dollars a year, uh, there's no reason not, I mean, other than than being an ethical and moral person, which you would hope most human beings would be, um, but apparently lot, some people aren't, uh, you know, that, that, that there's no deterrent. You know the 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 gain that you get if you're if you're getting slapped with a fine from fifty even fifty million and you're making hundreds of of millions of dollars or a billion dollars a year on that medication, um, there is no deterrent there, and that is definitely one of the problems that we see with a lot of the aggressive pharmaceutical marketing in particular that we saw with opioids themselves. All right, so you know what we what so what they said back in the in the mid '90s is that opioids worked well for chronic pain. Well. That's not true. Uh, no studies for um, opioids and chronic pain exceeded 16 weeks. That's four months. Now, chronic pain is, it, it, it by definition, is over three months. In most cases of chronic pain are really six months, year, two years, three years, 10 years, 20 years in, in duration. In fact, I have a um, survey on back pain, uh, which you are welcome to take if you're interested. And I'm just trying to get some some feeling of what, what people's personal experience with back pain. That's at straightshothealth.com forward slash back pain. And my preliminary results on that is that the mean duration of pain for people who have had back pain is over 10 years. And a lot of people have had it for 20 years or plus. But anyway, these studies that they were using to say that these opioid, strong opioid medications were safe for chronic pain, none of them, in fact, I think there was only one that was 16 weeks in duration. The rest of them were about four to six weeks long. They took data or they took research studies from acute pain. And as we talked about last week, acute pain, pain under three months, is not the same as chronic pain. And they extrapolated it and they said, well, because of these acute pain studies, this works for chronic pain. Uh, they also said there was little tolerance that developed with opioids. Uh, that was not true. They said there was a low risk of abuse and addiction potential with chronic opioids. That was not true. They said that there was no ceiling effect. In fact, the old, I remember when I remember, you know, learning about this. Um, and they said there was no ceiling effect when it came to opioids. If they, if people were still complained of pain, then you kept giving them more and you would be on hundreds and hundreds of milligrams of, of these strong opioid medications. And there are still some people running around on three, four, five, six, seven. I mean, the most I think I've found was about nine or 900 or a thousand milligrams enough that I couldn't believe that they actually even being able to go to the bathroom because opioids do cause severe constipation. And that's something that you, that never gets better. Anyway, somehow they were still pooping and I'm not sure how. But what we did find, again, 
no studies that's actually studied chronic pain um, you know, over, you know, for a long period of time that, you know, the data was from acute pain. Um, they studied the, these people taking opioids. They, they excluded everybody that had chronic pain in a lot of ways. Cause if you look at chronic pain, chronic back pain, risk factors, unemployment, um, high degrees of anxiety, depression, things that actually, uh, are at greater risk of developing chronic disabling low back pain, which we talked about on the last episode, those people who are more, likely to develop chronic disabling back pain were excluded from these studies. Uh, And so they were studying people who really was a very, very small margin of the population. Um, And and even the studies that they had on that small margin of the best possible candidates for these drugs were not that good. And then we also later found that there was a high risk of abuse potential with these. And number one, they do not eliminate pain. In fact, if you look at the studies, um, less than it's about one in three people may have a uh, 30 to 50 percent reduction maybe in their pain over time that's so 30 percent of 30 percent of the people may have um, you know a, a risk of 30 to 50 percent of their pain so it, it, it there is not a whopping amount of information for this other things that was said that opioids did is that they, they allowed people to improve their function and improve their quality of life Again, that was not true. There's been really no clear supporting evidence demonstrating that, that somehow this allowed them to stay or return to work. Again, no evidence. Um, and then the other part, particularly when it came to driving, et cetera, that, you know, they were able to think clearer, that their man, you know, hand-eye coordination was better, their reaction times were no, you know, were not different in any way, shape, or form, were safe to drive. Now, that might have been true in if... And there's big ifs on that. If you do not change the dose, there's no other impairments present, meaning you already don't have any problems thinking or hand-eye coordination, and you're not using any other drugs, right? That is extraordinarily rare when it comes to chronic pain and people who are actually on these opioids, all right? Other problems with with um, these large uses of opioids for, for back pain that has been risen over the years, we have a natural opioid in our body. Right. We have can we have natural hormones in our body that controls all of our, uh, you know, there's cortisol and you know there's thyroid hormone and there's growth hormone and stuff. That we, we do have natural opioid type uh, hormones in our body, and w- what happens is those are all involved in regulating the processes of the body itself. Hormones are basically like big transmitters, and they tell you know your kidneys to do this and your liver to do this and your adrenal glands to do this and you know, grow hair here, don't grow hair, you know, whatever the case may be. And when you're taking something that is similar in structure to a natural hormone, you will cause changes, and not just in one area because these hormones are distributed throughout your entire body. There's receptors everywhere. And so what we found then with high-dose opioid therapy and actually chronic opioid therapy in general is people develop severe endocrine, pro- endocrine problems. Um, a lot of reproductive hormones. So, you know, if, if you're a man and you are on opioids for a long period of time, you actually, your testosterone level drops. Uh, you get testicular atrophy. Um, you have difficulty with erections, et cetera. Uh, and, and there's a whole host of other endocrine problems there. So these are not benign medications. They they work throughout your body and they cause systemic kind of, uh, you know, it's like they just affect all these different body systems. Um, you know, respiratory depression, that's your ability to breathe. These slow down your, 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 um, the way that you breathe, you, you take less breaths, et cetera. Um, this is particularly dangerous if you have problems with, with sleep and breathing already. So if you have, um, 
you know, obstructive sleep apnea, which is very common as we have a larger population now and a heavier population. Uh, you're taking these medications, you're at more risk of death during the night. Um, they do cause sleep disturbance. So people say, well, I'm taking them to help me sleep. Well, long-term opioid use is actually just associated with poor sleep, meaning you, you don't go into normal brainwave activity when you're sleeping. Um, you sleep lighter and you don't sleep as well. Uh, there's also cardiac, there's problems with the heart, you know, sudden death from, from on high doses of opioids, kind of slow different uh, heart intervals down. And then we, if we look at just like diversion and societal harm, this is, you know, again, one of the number one drugs of abuse. It's, I think it is the number one drug of abuse in adolescence now. They're getting it from uh, their family's medicine cabinets going to grandma's house or Uncle Joe's or whatever. Uh, it, it is a huge, 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 huge problem. And so um, with, when you look at opioids and low back pain, the other, the other thing to, to remember is if with, even with acute back pain and chronic low back pain, there isn't really great data saying that they work well for long periods of time. Okay, for, particularly for chronic low back pain, the data is, is much more suggestive that you're more risk of getting hurt using these medications than it is to provide you any substantial gain. And substantial gain is, is literally you living a better life, okay? Uh, even a moderately better life. Um, the likelihood of that happening on opioids is is just not suggested. And as I said, you're much more greater risk um, from taking these for long periods of time. Now, people, some say, well, I take it and I feel better. Well, you have to kind of take a step back and, and sort of like, what, what does that mean? Does that mean you're doing more? Um, does that mean you are out with your family more? Or are is it more than just you're sort of stuck? Right. And, and, and yeah, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do this in a way. I don't want anybody to think that I'm harsh, cruel, evil or anything. Is this the case? If this medication, if, if this was helping people with back pain, live full lives, do well, had really low risk of harm and they were living full, wonderful lives, I would be absolutely promoting it. But it's simply not the case. It's not what the, the research shows. Uh, it's not what my experience shows. Um, I will tell you, I've seen people on huge doses of these things and I've, and getting them off of these medications, I can't think of one that looked worse. Now, interestingly, people still complained of pain. Um, but one person I'm thinking about right now, her hair was no longer falling out. She was awake during appointments. Uh, she was bright eyed. Uh, she looked better. Uh, she was smiling. Uh, her you know, child protective services was no longer getting called because her babies were crying and nobody was uh, answering the door or taking care of them. Um, and, and she still did complain of pain. But when you looked at her objectively, she looked much better, right? So there's a, there's a difference there when we say, you know, pain and we actually look at function and outcomes, All right? Now, the challenges of treating back pain really is we live in a world where there is so much information telling you that you know surgery works or you need an injection or if you don't go in early for your doctor right away with your back pain and get all this stuff done and I've I mean I've literally seen ads I've seen you know uh, spine center websites that say this stuff um, that if you if you wait too long it's going to get worse and you're going to harm yourself in in ninety nine percent of the t that time. That information is completely bogus. 
because what we do know is early intervention when it comes to back pain, when we treat it as some, you know, as horrible, awful disease that uh, if you don't see a doctor right away and don't have massive amounts of therapy done, uh, you're going to be crippled and in a wheelchair is a load of garbage, right? The vast majority of back pain gets better over time. Are we likely to have it? Yes, absolutely positively. Like I said, when, the, when we look at the prevalence of low back pain, 60 to 90% of the entire population, whether you live in Timbuktu, you know, in the developing world or in uh, the middle of Manhattan, you're going to get it. I don't even know who the 10% of people are that has never had an episode of back pain or aren't likely to get it. Either they forgot it. I've had three in my life um, and they were, they were not fun. One dropped me to the floor in the middle of a friend's um, kitchen. Uh, that was quite scary, and uh, but knowing what I do now, I didn't know back then. Um, I didn't have any of these horrible, uh, you know, the the what we call red flag symptoms. All right, I wasn't pooping or peeing on myself, and I didn't have severe weight loss. I wasn't over the age of fifty with a history of cancer, and and, and other things that we're, we're not going to cover as much in this. I don't want to go into those red flags. I want to say overall, if you have an isolated episode of low back pain, really, you're going to get better. All right. And you're going to get better by doing things like staying active. All right. You do not, you avoid bed rest. Um, you're going to do what you can. And you, if you're running marathons and you hurt your back, then you're not going to be running marathons right off the bat, but you are going to do some moderate amount uh, of activity and you're going to really build it up over time. And a lot of it comes down to reassurance, which I'm trying to do with this episode, because with this low back pain, really the key to remember is the expectation that you will improve. All right. Um, I would avoid aggressive medical therapies. Again, there are, um, you know, when it comes to surgery and back pain, uh, you know, 95% of back pain or more is going to get better on its own. Most people do not need back surgery at all. Uh, I'm going to, maybe I'll talk about back surgery in the future because, you know, when even back surgeons do second opinions of people who have been recommended by other back surgeons for back surgery, you know, 50% or more, Actually, it is more, 60% or, or more have been told that, you know, they don't need surgery. And in, in a lot of those people were told that by the second spine surgeon that they didn't have anything wrong with their back, that there was nothing that there would be to operate on. And um, having talked to uh, some of my friends um, who, who are spine surgeons, uh, one in particular that we've done an episode in the past with, a uh, great guy, um, I was at a conference with him that he organized about two months ago. And the, the surgeries that are being done uh, on people who have normal spines is, is scary, right? So it's definitely not something to run into. Now, you also want to look at when you talk about medications, people see, what am I supposed to do? Well, if you are going to take medication, um, I am not completely anti-medication. Uh, but if you are going to use it, you're going to use it for, it, it is not to, to just dull the pain or whatever. It's really to promote movement because when it comes to back pain, in most disease process in general, movement is medicine, staying active, doing things, getting out, uh, seeing people. Now, when it comes to work, when you look at work-related back pain, one of the worst things that we can do is take people away from work and keep them off of work. If the, the longer people are, are away from their job because of you know being held off of work by a physician saying that they can't work, the less likely they are to go back. And... Um, you know, I, I, when you look at the actual occupational guidelines, you know that has much more to do with uh, legal implications and disability claims, et cetera, than it actually has to do with medical health, like your actual health, right? So if you can, you want to stay at work. If you can, if you, you want to be around people, you want to be in an encouraging environment, uh, and you want to have that expectation that you're going to do well. 
Now, when you look at chronic back pain, so if you already have back pain and it's been there uh, in long, in back pain, chronic back pain longer than three months by definition, but certainly much longer than that in uh, when you actually talk to people, the more resistant it's going to be in any particular therapy. Uh, there really are no particular na- magic bullets to it. Standard medical care, I will say, has failed miserably. Uh, you do overall want to make sure that you keep active. You want to exercise. Uh, you want to have positive expectation and in, in, in encouragement. I'm, I am telling you that if you do have chronic back pain, that doesn't mean that your back pain is going to get worse. It does not mean you're going to be crippled by by back pain. Um, in fact, there are uh, there's some really interesting data on that. And I wasn't going to put that in here, but I do have a, um, I'm working right now on a chronic back pain program, much different than anything out there uh, that will, it provides both the education, go in much more greater depth about back pain. We go and talk about pain itself. Um, the, you know, the three key elements that, that create the pain experience. And once you understand those, not only does it help you with pain, but it allows you to understand all these different potential targets that you can do for yourself to improve back pain, that you can do to actually really recover and, and free yourself from, from the prison that in many ways uh, our standard medical, thers, med- medical therapies have, have kind of created for people. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, looking probably within the next month or two that, that uh, I'll have that, at least in its first draft form, done. Uh, and if you are interested... And you can just go to strangehothealth.com and, and shoot me a note. And as I also said earlier, if you do have back pain and you want to take the back pain survey, which I've mentioned uh, in this episode or the previous episode, uh, you can go to straightshothealth.com forward slash back pain. And there is a simple survey there that you can fill out as well. Because yeah, I am very interested in people's experiences. And one of the particular questions on that is what people are being told by their doctors. Because uh, which I didn't touch on as much in this episode is there is some very very interesting data about what doctors say, uh, and in fact what the doctor believes themselves when it comes to back pain, and what the outcomes with their patients are. But I will hold that off for a future episode. And until that next time, folks, stay well. Bye.